0: Hello, and welcome to The Movement. This episode was recorded as part of the Movement Live series on Instagram. The Movement Live is hosted by 776BC founder and Olympic silver medalist Cameron Mackenzie-McKarg and Tokyo Olympic gold medalist Lucy Stephan. This week has three-time Olympic gold medalist and member of the famed Awesome foresome Drew Ginnon, to discuss his career and performing at the highest level. Now over to the show
1: movement with Lucy Stephan, Olympic champion. I'm Cameron mckenzie McCarg, co-founder of 776BC. And this morning we've got Drew Ginn. Well, we've had a few cracks at this, but um, we're official this morning. We've got Olympic champ Drew Ginn with us um, for a bit of a chat. So um, welcome, Drew, and, and thanks for uh, thanks for being a part of this morning's chat. How are you?
2: Thanks, Maxi. I'm, I'm well. i I've never experienced doing a false start ever in rowing. And in the last six weeks with you, we had three false starts.
1: <laughs> Can we kick off with, um, I think, sort of something that's, well, I like, I was saying to Lucy before this um, call, I find it interesting just the headspace of the start line of an Olympic final. But where I think it's interesting because it's relatable to anyone who sits at the start line of. The regatta down at Geelong, the regatta at Ballarat, or the regatta at the Tokyo Olympics, Beijing Olympics, whatever it is. But um, but just like that mindset, um, yeah, is relatable to everyone. But it's different for everyone in terms of just you know um, those those experiences and how you handle uh, that pressure of you know just about to put it all on the line. Um, Now, there's a history of a nice catalogue of, um, you know, sort of races at Olympic finals that you've been through where I imagine the experiences were quite different. But I wanted to start there because I think it's just interesting. Obviously, the first one, um, 96, uh, you know, just in terms of, well, you were 21, 21? Yeah. 21. Wow. Just, Do you remember? It's a long time ago. I can't even. No, I can remember. Um, can we talk about that? Just, I mean, obviously, you know, you know just the start line, because, you know, um, and that race too. Can, so, can everyone, um, we'll sort of put in a link if we can. I don't know. I'm sure we can put in a link, but um, on uh, YouTube, that 96 final um the awesome foursome so you came into the awesome foursome boat um they had the gold medal from 92 trying to back it up in 96 and it's you know it's one of those races where now that you've won the gold medal and sort of everyone goes oh the awesome foursome you know it was just such a dominant crew but you know how you managed to race that final and and sort of you know just nail the the perfect olympic sort of race um and we can go and sort of talk about Lucy's sort of final too, because there was similarities in terms of just the execution. But let's focus just on the start line. Headspace, do you remember it and, and sort of what was going through your mind at that time?
2: Yeah, I definitely remember it. I think the, the thing that I've, I've shared the story quite a lot, uh, because as you know, we, we all get asked, Lucy, you're the same thing, you all get asked to go and do lots of school visits and, and lots of eventually corporate opportunities where people always want to understand what the experience is like. But what I vividly remember in 96 was... The reminder i had for myself down the start particularly in the heat road was this is just another rowing race and i know that's a bit of a cliche but um i thought about the races i would had so the king's cup that year um while it was a big event internally in australia for us as rowers um, i loved the fact that i just went through a very simple routine of dipping the hands in the water making sure everything was tight i had benny double sitting uh, the seat in front of me, I think, for memory, and, and just tapping him on the side of the rib cage and saying, have a good race, and just some of those simple things that you just sort of go, and I'm not superstitious, but I do like the simple recipes and routines that bring you right into the moment. And where I first learned that was something that I think James or Laurie Malcolm said to me at school, which was, um, and they talked to us as school kids a lot about, let's be clear about the goal we want to achieve, and let's come right back to the process. And and the ultimate thing about sitting on the start line is the only thing you can control Are the little things you do and where your mind is at. So head of the river, I remember vividly sitting there going, all I've got to do is follow Sean Evans in front of me, match up perfectly, and nail that first stroke, right? So so head of the river wasn't big by doing that, head of the river became small and manageable. And so I didn't worry about the start, I didn't worry about all the other stuff. I listened to Cox, but I just focused on his back and went, right, I've just got to time it with him perfectly. And even in my mindset, wasn't, I wasn't even trying to row too hard. So following was key. So in 96, sitting there, I sort of went, I remember that in 92. I remember that in the King's Cup in 96 up at, up at Sydney. And I was like, right, so I go through my routine, dip my hands in the water. What I love about dipping your hands in the water is it's, it's, um, it's, it's visceral. So it's a kinesthetic feel that allows you to be right. And you don't just dip them. So my mindset's always been dip them and really feel the water you know like what's the temperature um take your hand out of the water momentarily what's it feel like in breeze and all that sort of stuff so really feel it and by doing that you're right there in the moment and then just sort of making sure everything's tight tap on the ribs to James Tompkins sitting in front of me at the time and my whole mindset was just follow James just really match up and I was calling the race plan in 96 so I had that in my mind but it was letting go of all that sort of stuff that was going to happen after that first stroke and and You know, we all have those moments where we have two minutes calling down and and we can find ourselves getting really anxious. So what I always found was by being really present and doing some simple things that brought me right into the boat, right into that moment. And then the final one was always just taking a couple of really deep breaths and on the outward breath, just really letting myself just sit in the boat and just feel there and just almost smile to yourself and go, how good is it to be here? So I think so, you know, there were Olympic champions and gold medalists in the boats next to us, but... You've got the awesome foursome awesome in your boat and it's just like what the in like in, in, in tokyo is you, you're so confident of who you've got on board and that gives you energy and then you're so clear in your mind so your nervousness is around how much it's physically going to hurt right but you've yeah. done that plenty of times but being really present for me is the antidote to any of the stresses any of the pressures and just trusting that once you nail that first stroke and even if it's not perfect you just, each stroke after each stroke after each stroke, just, you know, and that's what you've been doing in training. So, you know, hearing processing what was outcome as a, as a school kid, you know, probably didn't make a whole lot of sense, but it certainly was a thing that embedded for four years, leading up to 96. And did um,
1: did it get easier? So, sort of, you know, then the next Olympic finals, did it get easier or harder in terms of, you know, the expectation pressure of what you would doing sort of um, in those next Olympic games and the pressure of sort of, you know, performance of, you know, all the expectations of, well, you've done it before. Now there's a lot of expectations that you'll do it again. Does that play a factor? I mean, and did you find, yeah, more challenges as, you know, that pressure sort of, you know, um, built up or, or was it just going back to that same sort of process um, for two, well, not, not 2000, obviously so that was a, um, a miss you. but, yeah, I mean, was, um, 2004, I mean, like, you know, 2008 sort of is an interesting one too because I imagine there was, you know, for um, people that aren't aware, like you were managing um, very well a back uh, issue, let's call it. Um, a couple of days just sort of, you know, a couple of days pre-surgery and decided to row an Olympic final. And so... Um,
2: so, so Maxi, I think what I would say, each each experience was different but the same so same because you're rowing the boat same because you've got your race plan and same because you've done as much work as you physically can as we all know as athletes so you're confident in that the 2004 was a different kind of pressure because it was eight years after 96 and after having the injury in the lead up to 2000 missing out but what i found fascinating about 2000 with james myself and chris o'brien as our coach was we felt so well prepared and we hadn't raced internationally that year because we raced the world championships the year before and we went back home and then we trained and prepared. So, but we knew our benchmarks. We knew the training we'd done. We'd stayed fit and healthy. Um, we are in the final. We'd raced, I think, really quite conservatively in the races leading up to the final. So we knew we had more gears to go. And so the pressure of its eight years was there. No doubt about it. But excitement for hey, look, yeah, this has been a long time between drinks and we really feel super prepared, was different. And I think because we talked a lot about um, having the perfect race and and what what that would mean to us as rowers. So by having that internal drive so strong, it meant the external pressure didn't really save us too much. The 2008 was very different. You've just described a bit of a thing, but getting injured was the whole thing of just not wanting to let dunks down, Um, effectively not waste, you know, three years of a campaign and preparation where we'd gone really well. So getting injured in the heat row just added a whole lot of just stuff, just noise, distraction, frustration. Um, And so for me, that was a lot of pressure. That was pressure that came about just because I just didn't know whether or not my back was going to hold up. I didn't know how we were going to, progress through of any stage I'd break down. But eventually I sort of I realised I came to the point of going, Hey, look, if it happens, it happens. It Carsten, Carsten your crewmate, Carsten Horsling, is down somewhere at the start line, hiding behind a generator, the medical certificate's being signed so you can sub out of the boat. So in my mind it was like all that's done, actually that's that's pretty relieving. So if I do have yeah. problems, there's someone in there. Because normally yeah. you don't have someone at the start line, right? So so for me that was a different kind of pressure. And then Having success through those two games sort of taught me a lot about you've just got to have an internal focus that that overrides any of the external factors. And and so and it doesn't matter what the race is and it's not easy. So it's the mind games between externally worrying about the result, the competition, the weather, and then internally coming right back into going, hold it, I'm, I'm adaptive. I have a clear plan. I've done all the work. And so for me it was always just trying to work out how to bring yourself back inside and, and back to the things that you know you can have confidence in. And so it worked really well in those two games campaigns. But equally we had very different challenges, as I say. So it was a very different experience, but largely the principles of just don't get caught up on all the all the stuff and just get right into the stuff that you know you can do and deliver. That was that was key. And 2012 was largely the same feeling. We didn't quite execute on the day, but for me, what I really enjoyed was having young athletes on board like I was in '92 and just trying to make sure that everyone felt really calm, really confident in what we could actually achieve. So, um, but as an older athlete, I'm still going through the same self talk between the external, the internal, the pressure, the positive and negative experiences. Um, yeah, but you, you learn, I think, the skills to manage that better as a mature athlete than what you are as a young athlete. So in '96, I just had no idea how it was going to play out. Where in 2004 and 8 and 12, I knew that if I could stay in this sort of headspace and help the crew stay in that sort of headspace or just we've got our plan, we've got to deliver, then we could actually get a result. You know, like the training data's there, all the evidence was there, so we had to learn how to stay confident to execute. So if you haven't had a result, that's different because you're always you're always wondering. And I'm sure for the, the fours, you know, Lucy's four and, and the guys four in Tokyo, you have that situation of until you've actually got the result, you know in your heart of hearts you've done all the work and you're confident in the process. But once you cross that finish line, I think then it changes forever from that point on because you go, wow, I thought I could and I've actually done that now. So then it gives you a whole new resolve in in, in what you can actually do, I think.
1: Yeah. I mean, Lucy, like what is, um, you know, in terms of the conversation we had with Rosie last week and, you know, your headspace into your final, I mean, you hadn't done it, but I mean, there's a lot of similarities in terms of just the – I suppose the maturity of sort of just controlling your headspace and, and sort of getting back to some really simple things that you went through. Um, but does that sound sort of a, very relatable to some of the stuff that obviously not the back injury stuff, but the, um, the headspace stuff that you were going through?
0: Yeah, hugely. I think like sitting there, listening to Drew talk about it, it's funny that it's like, you know, it's 20 years apart, but to be feeling the same thing is pretty cool. And it's like, um, obviously, Drew helped me a lot early on in my career, um, but we probably lost contact. And I kind of went up to Penrith, and he's gone and done his thing. But it's funny that kind of all those things that I probably wasn't at the maturity level to understand before Rio, that he was probably saying to me that I just couldn't really grasp. Now, when he's talking, I'm like, oh yeah, of course, like we we did that too. So it's um yeah, it's definitely really interesting. Even this first twenty minutes, I'm like, oh wow, like I've grown up. <laughs>
1: No. Well this is what I think is nice is that sort of you know, it is a relatable part of the race um for everyone because mm. you know, uh whether you're in and Lucy, you're coaching year tens at the moment, year nines or year tens? What are you coaching uh,
0: like year nines going into year tens. Year nines going into
1: year tens. So a lot of these yep. young rowers, you know, they haven't got a wealth of experience in terms of sitting at the start line, but um but it's nice to sort of just tap into, you know, more sort of, um, you know, experienced senior athletes who have been there and just go, okay, well, this is, you know, the process that they're stepping through and there's some butterflies that exist at that level. That's okay. That's pretty normal. Um, actually, Drew, one of the sort of things, so 2008, you had a, a photo of your family with you?
2: kids. yeah.
1: Yeah, is that, and was that sort of something that, was normal, or was that sort of something to just give you a little bit of extra strength in terms of just going, okay, I'm putting myself through this for my family, for my kids, and you know, and um, what, what was the sort of yeah, what was the purpose of of carrying that with you?
2: Yeah, so I'll go back one step. 2004, I had a photo of the kids on the back of my accreditation in the yeah. in the slip that we had in, in, in Athens. And interesting enough, I was sitting on the stretching mat with James before the race. Now we didn't talk all morning; we just smiled and nodded at each other at different stages. So, and we both had our own little routines. Um, but at one stage, I, I turned my creditation over as I went to get out of my bag, and I saw the photo of my kids, and I just sort of smiled at it. And I looked up to James and Jesse; his daughter was in the photo, so it was my daughter and and his daughter. So when I say kids, they're our kids, yeah. right? And so, and James looked at me, and I smiled. He smiled at me, and so what that made me appreciate was we were doing this for more than just ourselves um our families had become an intricate part of the process and it had always been there once they were born but we would go on camps we'd have the kids there james's wife would be there my wife would be there and lots of stuff so there was a connection to them that you just wanted to have as a reminder so 2008 what i found really interesting was i had the photo of my kids now a bit older jasper had been born um and so i had it in a little plastic bag. And because of the injury, what I had in my mind was two things that were symbolic. One was, I'm gonna push through this for them and for everything that I'll put them through as a father. <laughs> you yeah, know, so that's 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 a key thing in terms of relationship. But I'm also not gonna risk my life and cause myself an injury that really is costly. And so the image was for two reasons, was to help me drive through, but to also help me be realistic about what I could actually do and look after myself. So I remember giving it to Chris O'Brien. So, collar. I walked up to him before the final and handed the photo up because the boat was actually up on the rack and he was doing some stuff up under there with uh, with the riggers or whatever it is. And uh, I just handed the photo and said, oh, can you stick that on my rigger? So it was actually stuck on the rigger for the final. Um, I recall looking at it maybe once, once as we paddled up to the start, Duncan yeah. and I stopped momentarily um, we didn't do a warm-up. Like, all we did was just paddle to the start. And so as I looked down, as we just before we went to the bridge, I looked down and went, okay, this is my reminder. I can do this, and I can do this for this reason. But also, if anything gets really nasty in my back as I'm coming down the racetrack or whatever it might be, and it really feels dangerous, then have the confidence and courage to call it as well. You know? so, and that would be disastrous, calling in the middle of a race. But even in a warm-up, you put you put your crewmate under a lot of stress and pressure. There's there's a gold medal that goes out the window there very quickly and potentially a medal, and they're at the back of the final. So, so for me, it was for those two reminders. And then after the race, and this was interesting. I mean, you were in Beijing, so you know this all too well. I grabbed the photo, and I slipped it under my under the front of my rowing shorts. I get out on the on the podium, and the um, the officials from uh, China thought that it was some sort of protest symbol. Yeah. <laughs> Or whatever it was, it was. Free the kids. <laughs> so I managed to have it up there with me. Um, but it was a bit of a challenge getting through that sort of that sort of piece, as you know, with the Olympic Games with uh, any branding or what yeah. might be perceived as branding. But um, yeah, it was symbolic, just to yeah, to motivate but also to be realistic about not not, not stuffing myself completely. Is Maddie
0: also the one who had to see a nun before every race? Oh,
1: uh, yes. Yeah, that was our 2009 campaign where um, we, it was a bit weird, like our World Championships week, we saw a nun every um, every day that we went down to the the training sort of um, uh, before the racing and then on the race days, the heat and the semi and and every time it became a bit of a joke, we're like, oh, yeah, but nun, this is a really good sign and then... Um, and then on the day of the final, you could just sense that everyone was looking was for a nun. <laughs> the whole time. And so, I mean, on reflection, we should have just gone to Mass, Sunday Mass in the morning and just, you know, done it properly, lit, lit a candle and then gone on to the final. But, but we didn't see a nun. We sort of, thought, and, and I remember talking to Maddie afterwards, and um, I think I said, oh, you know what was missing today, and everyone pretty much in the crew said, "Where was the nun?" None. And Jesus. everyone on the start line was sort of sitting at sort of the start line, sort of you know scanning the back um, oh. of the start line, seeing if there was a nun around. So we we became sometimes superstitious Sorry. in the wrong way. <laughs> I'm not too bad. Helpful.
0: I think um, I use it, I'm similar to Drew. I think that it's not. So I like to wear a dark colored crop top. So usually a black crop top and I have a certain crop top that was kind of my go-to and it's kind of changed throughout the years. Like you wear it and then you'll have a bad race and you're like, well, you're not lucky anymore. So you get rid of it. Um, But I think it's not so much that it's kind of when you wake up in the morning and you pull on the dark crop top, it's like your body's getting ready to race. And I would find when I was in Penrith, the kind of key sessions that, I needed that little bit of a pick me up or I was really tired or I knew that I wanted to do really well that day. It's like, okay, well I'm gonna put on the black like a black I've got about six or seven of them. Pretty much my whole crop tops now are just all black. Um, because that's for me, it's like the the trigger point in your head of like, all right, we're ready to go, we're pulling on the black crop top. So I just I think it's similar to that like tap on the side of the ribs or you kind of pre race ritual it's it's getting yourself ready and it's yeah you know, people always say like don't have superstitions because then if it doesn't happen it's like bad i think that's if there's like superstitions a none. Like but also it was like the same thing 2017 we rocked up to our first regatta in the fall and westy our coach had, like cleaned the boat and then we rock up to go put the boat on the water and there's a big bird poo on the bottom of the boat like on the shell of the boat and we're like oh it's all good like it's lucky obviously you get pooed on by a bird it's lucky so we were like yeah great and then it happened at world cup three and we're like oh my god like this is a thing and then we're all like kind of worried trying not to get like caught up in superstitions west like no 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 because world champs that year were in um the usa so he's like no, no 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 it's only a thing when we're in europe so when we get to the usa like it doesn't matter if the bird doesn't poo on the boat but then we got to usa and the bird pooed on our boat so it was fine. Um, but yeah i think they can be things that aren't that you can kind of control and it's not so much it's like okay well Bye. i have my lucky socks today but that's okay, that's okay. it's just me getting ready to go, ready to go. um so, um,
2: so a yeah.
0: little bit superstitious but not too superstitious yeah <laughs> I think it's a good it's a good point. Is that the
1: superstitions that you can control, as long as they don't become all engrossing, are okay. But um, the ones that you can't control, you can't control a bird unless you you know sort of travel with one. And um, we should have travelled with a nun, but like that's not something that really you know is um, something you can control. But I think sort of um, yeah, it's sort of that process of. I think just, and even the touching the water, Drew, I like that one because the sensory is sort of part of it. Like I think sort of, because your mind can be racing, which again, that that can be pretty normal. But what you're trying to do is almost circuit break that as, you know, with a sensory experience where it's just like, that's the touch and feel of water. That sort of just brings me back. And Jeff Simons, who um, you and I both know well, sports psychologist um, who's worked with us on, different campaigns but he so he was um involved with us at our head of the river campaign and um sort of all the way back then and he used to sort of talk about just your fingernail to your thumb and just sort of just feeling that sensation at the start line just to again and at the time i was i was a schoolboy. i don't think i really realized what it was doing but I was it was actually sort of something that we used to do just to sort of go okay we're just on the start line and this is what we're doing but again it was just a bit of a sensory experience just to go okay feel that and that sort of just takes your mind into something that is here and present and then sort of just clear some of the conversation that you might mind be having in terms of you know what are we doing in the you know middle thousand and what's going to happen with the other crews and so um, yeah it was um I think some of those cues are important but it's um but I mean the other thing too is it's it's an individual exercise to understand um, you know how you do prepare properly and and sit on a start line and uh, we spoke to Curtis Curtis Magar, the um, paralympian who uh, we sort of mentioned last week he um, he you know he's racing by himself so he's got his own sort of headspace and he hasn't got other sort of you know people on his boat but he was sort of thinking of a funny um, scene out of *Talladega Nights*, just to sort of, just to have a bit of levity to the seriousness of that moment, and so sort of just to break it down a bit, which, um, which I thought was pretty uh, entertaining. But, um, but, next thing, so I mean, we'll move on from the start line. I mean, one of the things we had Bill Tate on uh, about a month ago, and Bill's world now, sort of, you know, following um, his athlete life, has moved into high-performance roles um and you know similar to you you've sort of been involved with throwing australian and cricket australian high performance roles you're obviously a high performance athlete um one of the sort of it's a bit of a general question but just you know that you know what is high performance to you as a sort of um now that you've seen it from different perspectives and you know, um, you know, How would you describe a high performance program um, with, uh, you know, how you set it up or or how you approach it? You know, is, is there anything sort you've you've now sort of gone? Okay, this is this is what you need to do. Or open ended question. Of, of, it's, it's, <laughs> there's no wrong or right answer here. But um...
2: no, well, I, I think I think what I've come to realize, and I think I, yeah, my gut feel was while being an athlete in rowing, I always felt like there was a bunch of principles that are largely the same across any sport and largely the same across business as well. So, And there's nuances. So I'll give you the example. High performance is exactly as the term describes. It is all capture. It captures everything. Um, If we were to really nut it out, I sort of go, what you're trying to do is you're trying to help people who want to achieve something. So there's aspiration in it. um, There's boldness in it. Um, the, the idea of high performance for my mind is effectively any level you're operating at, you could be under 19s, you could be under 21s, you could be international. The mindset you're bringing is, how do you take your standards significantly higher than what you've actually done before? So, so it's aspirational in terms of the goals you're trying to achieve but there's also an element of working with the people and, and understanding that high performance isn't just something that happens out there, it's actually people working out a process for themselves that delivers a performance. So call the performance first part so you need performance mindset you need then people and then you need to know your equipment and the processes and practices you're going to have so elite performance and world-class performance is the upper echelon yeah so but high performance captures all this right the way down through the pathway but for me it's the mindset that the coach the athlete the practitioners have to help an individual go out there and deliver a, a performance that's better than anything they've ever done so it's personal best all that sort of stuff Um, The principles that I saw in rowing were as simple as get real clear on on the goals you're trying to achieve and have lots of conversations about what that really means to each individual person because everyone brings something different to the experience. So that's the communication piece we always talk about. but, But goal clarity and then role clarity is so essential. So while we're sitting in different boat seats and we're rowing and doing the same thing, largely sitting in the bow seat versus the two seat, three seat, four seat in a four, you've got different things you've got to do and different things you've got to focus on and while you're still rowing. So for me, I think you scale it from individuals need to know exactly what they've got to do to manage themselves, to perform. They also need to know their role. They also need to know where they're going, not just on the day for performance, but also big picture, you know, the next Olympic cycle, um, the next phase for the age bracket that you're jumping up to or whatever it might be. So then, then you get on the job of going, right, if you've got that clarity, then you go and do the work. Now, as you both know, as well as I do, turning around and saying, I'd like to win a gold medal is just one factor in having someone to have a bit of courage, right? So, so high performance is being able to articulate what you aspire to. But then working back with the person to say, okay, now let's go and get some data and let's go and do some training to see where you actually stand up. Now, there's a reality check in all that, but most of us, even when we say we want to win a gold medal, aren't on that particular day ready to win a gold medal. So high performance for me is a conversation that you have internally about aspiring, reality check, this is what I've got to do, aspiring, reality check, and you're just trying to close that gap, right? And, and the better you can do it at aspiring and closing the gap, principally, um, the better you perform. So for me, I think what I saw in rowing was the role clarity, the goal clarity, the work effort put in, the obsessiveness, if I'm to be fair about what I've seen with a number of athletes, is that not everyone starts out obsessive, but most, most athletes, once they've been doing their sport for a period of time, become obsessive. So what are you eating? What are you drinking? How are you recovering? How are you training? How do you like the boat set up? How do you like things to feel? You've got to have a real, real desire to get all that right. And then I think the outcome becomes that, you know, you've got to get through a selection process of some sort. So high performing is being able to manage whatever processes are thrown your way. And you may not agree with them, you may not like them, but you're up for the challenge of saying, test me in any way you want to test me and I'll get through it. Um, and then peak for me. So, high performance is all encompassing. But what every high performer knows is the best way to get a result is to peak for a performance. So, the good coaches, good athletes appreciate that winning every single day is something we enjoy, but winning every single day is not the most critical part. Winning on the day that counts most is the critical part. So, I understood that in rowing. Then I got a chance to obviously be the head coach integration sort of role, and what I found was there were certain coaches that really got that and other coaches that didn't quite get that, and that's okay. Like, it's a learning process for everyone. Um, In cricket, what I noticed very, very familiar with was the top players really got the idea that they couldn't be the best cricketer every single day and not every single training session was perfect. So high performance is also the reality of good days, bad days. It's not perfect, you know, and so... Principally, what I saw in cricket was the very good athletes find their routines, find their ways of developing themselves. They work with key coaches. Um, they've got a very clear idea in their minds at some stage in their season, they want to make a certain standard or level that they've never achieved before. Um, I think there's a lot of work on the multidiscipline piece, which is you have a coach, you've got sports science, um, you might have a skills coach in a particular area, you might have a mental coach, nutritionalist, all these things. So, having access to all that is, is essential. So for a pathway athlete, you're still getting access to that knowledge, but it might be coming through just one coach. As an elite athlete, you're now getting access to the people who are truly world-leading in that space. So but high performance for me is still the mindset of getting the most out of yourself and getting the most out of those who are around you to perform the very best you can. So that can happen from under 16, under 15, right the way through the system. Um, So, yeah, it's an umbrella term. um, But interesting enough, I think the principles are largely the same across every single sport, every single activity. Did you,
1: has your perception of how to achieve a high-performance um, program and, and then sort of result changed, uh, you know, from your athletes sort a days to sort of now looking at... Because one of the things I look at, um, which is a challenge, is when you're an athlete, alignment of people in your boat and the result you're trying to get is actually quite... It should be quite simple because, you know, you're there sort of... Um, for a single sort of purpose, and it should that alignment. Even if you ask for of different kind of athletes and different personalities, what you're trying to achieve is is sort of you know pretty simple to align. Um, and then as you start to involve more people around that, so all the sort of things that need to go into it, and the support sort of staff, and you know who's involved, some of that alignment is harder to piece together and put together. And I think, Lucy, one of the benefits potentially out of uh, the you know, sort of um, program now and have been centralized is that there's probably an easier sort of, um, uh, I suppose, method to get everyone aligned because everyone's in there all together and the conversations are really sort of consistent through sort of a season. But, but Drew, has your sort of, yeah, perception um, going from athlete into sort of, you know, a high performance manager changed at all or just understanding of it changed?
2: It's where you view it from, I think. So, so... As a manager, I'm viewing strategy, and I'm v- viewing resources, and I'm taking a long-term perspective. Head coach integration, it was like the next season and maybe the Olympic cycle we're in, um, and the cohort of coaches. So principally it's the same, the cohort of coaches is how do we get the cohort of coaches to work better together? And that doesn't mean they need to do the same things, but better together so they're helping, supporting each other, working in when they need to. So that's a rowing crew. Um, what I think you've just described that I do believe is there's certain numbers, sizes of groups that work really effectively. Um, and and to, let's talk about centralising, decentralising for a moment is we were actually centralised, but it was centralised in Melbourne as athletes through the Victorian Shooter Sport. Sport. Right? People don't realise that. So centralising is really good. Um, the benefit of that meant that you had Noel Donaldson um, you had a bunch of coaches, eventually Chris O'Brien, yeah, other coaches on the riverbank and a squad of athletes, male and female, all working in Melbourne. Now, now that can happen anywhere in, in the country. Now, by design, they've now got the two centres, Canberra and, and Sydney. So, so centralising has always worked really well. What you've said is as soon as it gets big, and this is the thing as a high-performance manager, is you've got, say, 40 staff, and in cricket Tasmania you, you might have a budget, I think it was ten million dollars, right? So that's bigger than the rowing budget itself for the national team and that's the state program. And the 40 staff is huge, right? So there's a complexity there. So so where I went to was okay, I need I need pods and cohorts. So the coaching groups are pod, the sports science groups are pod. But the male and female program, the head coaches, are a pod with me, you know, and then what you've got is you've got the pathway coaches that are a pod. So it's just different ways of cutting up the group. To ensure that there's easy ways to connect and engage. So you're making them into little crews, but as a high performance manager, you're thinking strategically overall 40 staff you've got to get heading in the one direction, working together well. Um, the resourcing piece I always found really interesting. You know, so as an athlete, never really worried about um, how much the whole sport was costing or how much the whole sport was getting funded for. I was aware of some of those things. But as an athlete, what I was more worried about was do we have do we have the boat? Do we have a camp? You know, do, we, do we have access to accommodation? Um, am I being supported enough to be able to get on with the job of doing what I do? So that was really immediate um, stuff. Um, and, so, and even in the training methodology, early days as an athlete, I just did the training. I just did whatever the coaches asked. By the time you'd been in the sport 15-odd years, all of a sudden you want to be involved in the training plan. You want to be involved in, in the innovation of the things you do and all that sort of stuff. So, so that's elevating out of just sitting in the boat to, I now want to be a co-coach almost in that process. When you become a coach, then you want to sort of step a bit further away and sort of go, how do you manage a whole club or how do you manage a whole um, sporting squad? And when you get hot points manager, you're like, how do I manage all the departments that relate to having all those teams? So it's scalable. Um, and I think as you scale out, you can't then worry too much about the experience that you would have been a part of in the boat as an athlete. You've got to let that go. But you've got to trust that those athletes... And in cricket, it's the, it's the batting group, it's the bowling group. Like they're the cohorts that you go, you've got to trust that they're motivated. They're, they're wanting to get their process right. The coach are working with them. My job then was to get strategy right with the coaches and the staff and get the resourcing right and then get out of their way. Um, I would have hated selectors and head coaches to think that they come down to our rowing sessions and tell us how to hold the oar handle or put the blade in the water. And And every time that happened, we just sort of get defensive and go, they've got no idea. That doesn't mean they didn't have an idea, but it's just like they're not there on a daily basis. They can't really contribute. So so for me, it was always reminding myself as I'm not the athlete anymore. I'm not sitting in the boat anymore. I'm not having those experiences. So therefore, I would ask those athletes, tell me about your feelings, tell me about your experiences, to listen and learn. And then I'd listen to the coaches to listen and learn. Now, i have a conversation with the head coach, but I wouldn't really have a whole lot of conversations with, Athletes, players at that sort of level, because that's for the coaches and the athletes to be doing. So I think you just learn how to step out of that process to observe things, to get the insights, and to help support to make sure everyone's got the resources they need. And that was happening for me as an athlete when we came through. So Chris and Noel were making sure that we had everything we needed, and the head coaches at the time, like Reinhold Barchi in 1996, making sure the team had everything they needed. So, so you're doing the same things, but you're just stepping out of the experience yeah. a little bit and you try and make sure that those things are clear to to, to forge forward and, and the athletes and the coaches can do what they've got to do. It's sort of um, it sounds like,
1: you know, and you made an earlier comment about just knowing your role. And yeah. um, and I mean and even if you hear you know, even sort of I think about some of the um, the recent uh, football teams who have had success and you know, one of the big things, it's, it's become a bit of a cliche when they sort of, you know, say, you had a great game and what did you do? Oh, I just played my role. And um, and it sounds a bit cliche, but then I think they're sort of struck into something where sort of, you know, the players understand why they're there and what their role is. And, um, and I think sort of, you know, the high-performance environment, you know, if you can get everyone in that sort of, you know, collection of people to understand their role, and where their boundaries sit. And obviously, you know, you always want to sort of, you know, have conversations in different areas and that makes things in life interesting, but, um, but really understanding that I'm here for this part of, you know, the um, performance and this is my role. And, and even, I mean, Lucy, you sort of found that with, um, I suppose, the, the change in where you're sitting in the boat a little bit is just, you know, you're there in the stroke seat and there in the bow seat. Um, and just you know, balancing your role within the crew was um, was something that you had to you know navigate through. Is I mean, like, can you relate to that kind of bit?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think the biggest, well, like the year that it really hits home for me was twenty nineteen, and it was to the point like our pre race, our pre race chat, our pre race chat. Every chat was exactly the same, and it was Westie rolling out being like, "Loose, what are you going to do today?" And a massive thing that I do because obviously I'm on the smaller side and so when I was stroking and where I stuffed up at World Cup 2 that year we got bronze was because I just spun it and I was like we've got to get this out we've just got to rate, and I wasn't sitting back and pressing through and I have these three incredibly strong rollers sitting behind me and so they couldn't do what they couldn't do their jobs because I wasn't doing my job so then a massive thing leading into World Cup 3 and then the world champs was to make sure that even if, as long as I pressed through kind of like what Drew was saying, as long as I finished off that first stroke, then would drive it onto our rhythm and we could sit in it. But that, that was my role. And then Sarah had her role. Westy would ask her. Kat had her role. And then Ollie had her role. And it just really simplified it down that we knew our rhythm. And to get that rhythm, we all had something that we had to do. And if we could get onto our rhythm, then we knew that it would be quite hard to not like for someone to row through us or for us not to win. So I think it's a funny thing because sometimes you'll either want to do it all or you'll want to do it your way. And it'll be like, well, this worked for me this one time three years ago. Or like I said, I'm a small athlete, so I need to rate high and I need to be zippy. But it's like, no, you've got to figure out what's right for your crew and like even coming into the, the, I guess the new crew in 2020 or 2021 with Annabelle and Jess, and then going back into bow seat and obviously Annabelle and Jess have their rhythm. They're probably a bit more like their ability to get connected off the catch is quite phenomenal. So I was like, okay, well, how are we going to match that? What do I need to do to match that? And it's been out to put your ego aside and be like, we need to find. It's like rhythm doesn't come from the stroke seat. Rhythm comes from every single, if you're in an eight, it comes from all eight of you. If you're in a four, it comes from all four of you in a pair. It comes from the two of you. So it's like, how do we find our rhythm um, is like the biggest thing. And you've got to work together to get that. So you have to have your role and you can't do it on your own. Like even coming back to the clubs now and rowing out, you know, go, like I went out in a four this morning and we've had two pairs. I've been around the pair with Cat Wary and then two quite good under 23 girls, but obviously they row quite differently toward me and Kat because we've been up in Penrith and we're quite used to doing scratch crews, but it's been our get into the boat, feel what each other's doing and then we can set up our rhythm um so yeah it's just i think getting your head around it and it is hard like we've all got egos we've all gotten to where we've gotten because we're good at something but you've got to figure out what can i bring to this crew and how can you all want to win everyone who's sitting in that boat wants to win you've all just got different ideas so you need to be able to get on to the same idea of it
2: yeah yeah And, and Maxie, I'd, I'd, I'd reinforce something there and extend on what Lucy's described. So if you were to ask me what's been the ultimate mindset that I've seen in a lot of athletes, what Lucy's just described is exactly it. I'll give everything of myself to make this work versus the athlete who's sitting there saying, I want to do what I want to do because I think that'll make it work. Yeah. And that was reinforced with me in 19, uh, sorry, 2004 with James where I've rode bow seat a lot, right? Now, I'd rode in various combinations in all sorts of seats over the time, but bow seat was something I did really well. And so I'd sit behind James and I was doing everything I could to give him supreme confidence that I was like one with him, you know, just just one mindset, one movement, one feel. And then James said something after after Athens, which was he would actually be sitting there thinking to himself, how do I feel Drew's rhythm behind me? How do I match up with Drew's behind me so i'm sitting there thinking how do i match up with his rhythm he's thinking how do i match up with his rhythm so he's not stroking from ego even though he was one of the greatest strokes ever that the sport's ever seen but the bowman's going i'm going to make it as comfortable for him as possible make it as easy everything he does i'll do and he's doing the same thing so that's where i think in in fours and eights it becomes more challenging because you do get sometimes that sense of separation but ultimately the best crews are the ones who really buy into what are we doing to help each other make this boat fly, and, and that's when you give of yourself, give everything of yourself. Now, if your role is to stroke, well, then there's, a, there's an element of you've got to lead the rhythm, and you've got to make things really visible, and you've got to make things predictable. Um, now, you could take that egotistically and say, I'm the leader of the crew, but you're not, because ultimately you only make the boat go as fast as everyone else behind you contributes to it, right? So, and as soon as you wake up to that, stroke becomes better connected. Bow gets that because someone's sitting in front of them, but bow also has to think, how am I motivating? How am I giving energy? How am I giving everything I can to this boat, this crew? So that person out there doesn't feel vulnerable leaving the rhythm. So so that for me is a principle of a lot of the good crews, because you hear them where they just become so enmeshed in that experience together. All the good combinations, small boat combinations, clearly that happens when they go well, but any great fours, any great eights, it's a meeting of the minds, you know, like where everyone really comes together.
1: Do you think um I mean it just sort of, you know, as you're sort of talking there. Do you think it's helpful for rowers to sit in the bow seat, um, you know, during sort of you know certain rotations of boats? But yeah, you get those people who are always in the middle of the boat, always at you know the stern end. But just yeah, where you learn, um, I think sort of that you know playing your role piece is is the bow seat. You know, you're really clear as to I need to link this whole rhythm and combination together here, and I'm not you know. Um, I can't just go one out here because, you know, that's going to destroy the boat. I wonder whether sort of, you know, that's sort of just something that is a good practice for those athletes um, who typically sit at the front of the boat or in the middle to sometimes just sit in the bow seat and um, and go, ah, there's, there's a bit I need to think through here in terms of how I support the crew as opposed to just going, this is what I'm doing. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, th- I think you're exactly right. I think there's a mistake that gets made with squad group sometimes where everyone's being moved around in pair combinations small boat combinations that can take away confidence but what i do like is if you're in a pair and it's got a natural sort of seating preference but then you go and spend two weeks rowing the other way around um james and i used to do it quite a lot in the pair where we we'd spend probably two or three times in the year where we'd actually row for two to three weeks rig the other way around dunce and i did the same thing and so, but it teaches both of you about the roles. Now, that's a, that's a pair situation. It teaches both of you about the roles, about the responsibilities, about how to help each other. In bigger boats, it, 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 it's it's a principle of how to help people learn, right? Rather than telling someone what they should do to get it right, you take three who, who you know, history would say many coaches go, oh, I put my problem athlete in the three seat. Well, no, don't put your problem athlete in the three seat. Give that athlete a responsibility by stroking your seven seat, which is less complicated because you've got less moving parts in front of you. Allow them to think about their movement, get their movement right, lead the movement, so a bit of responsibility. Watch them grow, but do it for a number of weeks where they can actually learn and develop confidence in themselves. Um, equally, take the stroke seat and go, right, now you're going to row in the in the three seat or the two seat where you've got no, no control over the rhythm, you know. but you're contributing to it. Now, what does that feel like? What do you learn about yourself? And your point about one out is exactly right. Every seat behind stroke has the propensity to actually stuff things up really quickly by looking out of the boat and going, right, I'm going to haul on it now. And you fragment it and you get dirty and everyone gets dirty before you know it, you wash up a heap of speed. So you want to contribute, Lucy said, yeah, we all want to win, we all want to do well, but you've got to stay in the framework. But you learn that by being in these other seats, you know, and I think that's critical. Yeah.
1: Now, um, and these are, I did say to Lucy that we could probably, put aside the day here and just keep talking about all the different things that, which is um which is one of the fun parts of catching up with you drew part of the conversation this morning was you know just your approach to pushing the limits and finding new sort of areas of performance you know your approach to it was it you know a real structured plan or was it experimental or was it sort of how would you approach you know really um you know chasing new limits in terms of your performance was, because I think it's, it's, it's a bit innate and natural for you, but, um, but then was there a bit of a structure and, and plan behind it? Uh,
2: yes. Uh, what I can say is, um, I, think, I think you're right. I think largely people didn't appreciate how much work went in behind the scenes. Um, now, I saw, I saw this myself where um, I remember being at school, so we both went to the same school, Scotch College, I was in boarding the boarding house, you were in the boarding house. But oh, South Kisland Boys, Mac. Now when I was there at the school. Good, good country, I, yeah, that's right. Taking you taking you way back now. But I remember vividly sort of going there were guys who were running in athletics who were state champions and national champions. And I remember at the time going, How do these guys do that? Like what, what is it that they're doing? Now I didn't have any answer. I didn't know anything else, but I remember vividly getting out around the um, laundry area that was in the middle of the um, the three boarding houses. i got a 30 centimeter ruler and I measured out 100 meters, 200 meters, 400 meters, 800 meters, 1500 meters. Now I kept putting marks, around, but I kept looping around. Now I did all this to then go out there and, and do runs and just practice running at speed and working out how to get faster and faster. So why I say that is because I think there is isn't an element of being in, in, intuitive about this and there is an element about being really curious as to you see something and you go, that's amazing, Joseph Ishgear, amazing. Like, And I remember watching him run and going, like, the guy is sublime around the back part of the track. But how does he do that? So without knowing any answer how he did it, I went, okay, well, how would I solve that problem? So put that in rowing context, what I got from Mike Mackay was, Mike was the hardest worker at the time that I'd ever seen before. And James was the most natural mover um, and, and if anything, James was sort of pretty laid back and pretty comfortable because he was the best rower in the country, right? So Mike worked out how to catch up to James and sometimes surpass him in physicality and, and in performance on the water, but not because his start point was better, but because he just kept problem solving and he kept learning, kept developing. So, so having my own intuition and curiosity helped as a start point as a bit of a preference. Then seeing someone like Mike over just a few years and hearing some of the stories and going, wow, like this sport, and most sports reward people who do the work and put the effort in. And so I think, Maxine, my, my thing was, there's a design to it, which is, look at what you've got to do. So we do a 2,000 metre rowing race, but I used to always laugh and say to people, when was the last time you did a 2,000 metre ergo just for yourself? Mm. And almost always, no athlete would choose to do a 2,000 metre ergo just for themselves. But what I was doing was 2,000 metre ergos just for myself, that I wouldn't even communicate And I wasn't doing them to do PBs, I was doing them to work them out and understand how to manage myself. So so the structure was, I've got a 2000 metre rowing race, no one can hide from that. What have I got to do to learn how to do that better, live with it better? Now, I didn't want to cook myself physically, but I was doing regular ergos behind the scenes that no one knew about. Um, Then I started exploring things that I'd heard about, which was, okay, we do power strokes. Some coaches swear by power strokes. I'm just going to go fan setting 10 and learn how to do lots of fan setting 10 on an ergo and then all of a sudden you go and do an ergo 2k and you go, well, that actually felt easier. I didn't get a better score, but it felt easier. Wow, this strength and loading work helps here. So, I mean, it was intuition. It was curiosity and the structure was um, we know what the parameters are of a rowing race, so let's problem solve. Let's work that out. And problem solving methodology has been around for a long, long time. So, um, I love doing things that no one knew about um, and finding ways to get better myself and then, and then educating those that I was rowing with and training with. I think 2012 James Chapman must've made a comment um, to someone that I think I overheard if I've got this right, which was one of the questions was what's different about training, and working with Drew. And he said, we do a truckload of work that you wouldn't even realize. So we were doing <clears throat> longer rows than anyone understood. We're having longer crew meetings to understand ourselves and each other and Doing that sort of work. We're working with a sports science group to unearth ways of improving. So, the tip of the iceberg is when you see the performance. And, and you're right, like, you know, watching guys like James, it was like, how do, you, how do you baffle your competitors by making it look even easier, but knowing that you're supremely confident because you've done everything behind the scenes? And so, I think good athletes are encouraged to do that, you know, encouraged to have a calm face and look like they're not working too hard. But I wasn't the best the best athlete. I wasn't the best physically. I wasn't the strongest. I had lots of injuries. So that just afforded me the time to get creative. So when I had an injury with my back, I remember walking around an athletics track as my recovery and I started timing it and going, how do I learn how to walk faster and faster and faster? So I was working on the same principles of making a boat go faster, but this was now walking while I couldn't row, you know? So so I think that was largely intuitive, but there was enough structure there from guidance of some key coaches that allowed me to put those two things together, structure and yeah, you know, intuition and gut feel and curiosity that produces a good outcome. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, I mean, I think I discovered this about you in the um, lead up to the London campaign, and you'd sort of come in and go, "Yeah, I did this. I did this last night, and I sort of had a crack at this test." And I was like, "He's nuts!" Like, this is, you know, we're in the middle of a program, which sort of, you know, was doing this, and you're sort of off on the side doing these little sort of experiments on the side, which, um, which then I started to piece together as to Ah, so there's, and one of the things I think sort of, um, what you were saying about the 2K thing is, you know, how many people actually just put themselves, you know, to the test? Yep. And this is where I think you, you know, being curious about some of this stuff breaks down, because um, everyone, there's a fear factor around the 2K ergo test, which, right well, it's so it bloody hurts, but, um... But if you're a bit more curious about it and sort of, you know, where you can, you know, sort of find some gains and test this out and test that out, it's it starts to just break down, you know, the fear factor and just going, oh, hang on, there's a bit of a problem-solving exercise of, you know, where I'm really good at and sort of some weaknesses and things that sort of I need to improve. Um, Lucy, I'll leave you in because you sort of, well, I think you've gone through some, you know, uh, periods of really, you know, big gains in your performance and, and sort of where you actually um, were able to sort of, you know, step into even the physical side of things. I mean, like, you know, was in terms of your sort of ability to test yourself, did you have little projects on the side that you're like, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna have a crack at this?
0: Um, <clears throat> not to Drew's level, I would say. Um,
1: no, well, within, yeah. well, I
0: think, within, yeah. um, I think a, a big shift for me was I kind of, you know, and I've talked about this a little bit before on here, but had a lot of success early on as an underage athlete, just thought I was really good at rowing and no one, like I was just really talented and everyone else wasn't as good as me. I quickly learned that wasn't the case. Um, but 2016 was a huge year for me in the fact that women's sweep hadn't done very well at all in 2015. Um, we hadn't qualified the pair or the eight. So we were looking at going to the final qualification regatta. Um, we qualified all the sculling boats. So instead of still training the pairs and stuff like that, what the, I guess, high-performance team decided is to put us all in single sculls. So every single female rower in Australia started sculling. And coming from Ballarat, hardly Road, came down to Melbourne Uni, always slept. So I'd spent probably a cumulative of like three or four weeks over my life in a single scull. So I had to learn very quickly on how to move the single and I think that's when I kinda had to tap into more so instead of working with someone which I'd always loved, being in a pair and I'd rode about for a couple of years by then I'd rode the pair with Shah Sutherland and we were very close and we'd gone on a journey together. But all of a sudden having to be in the single skull by myself where it was all on you. If I wasn't going fast, it was my fault. And so I had to figure out what I was doing and how I was sitting in the boat to go there. And same thing kind of happened with my 2k it was like they weren't going to really look at us if we weren't sub seven and i think at that point my pb was like a 701 so i had to figure out how to go sub seven and i was like well to get faster on the erg you just have to spend time on the erg so i was erging i didn't like bike riding because i felt like it was well i'm not very good at it i don't trust myself around other people and i don't trust other people around me i don't want to fall off my bike and screw up my olympic campaign so i um When everyone else would do bike rides, I'd just jump on the erg. So I was erging about five times a week and two of those were like threshold hit ergs. And of course, I then PB'd by like nine seconds just because I was spending time and I was going there and pushing myself. And I think for me, that was a massive learning that year of stepping out from, I guess, being that young, oh, it'll all work out is what it is and actually taking responsibility for my results and taking responsibility for where I wanted to put myself in and yeah, essentially stop blaming other people and step up and, and hold yourself accountable. So that was probably like the big year that shifted for me. And then following on from that after, you know, I ended up making the crew and we didn't qualify, but then we got to go, but that was then the massive step forward coming into the following cycle was like, all right, I've had enough of this, Stuffing around. I never want to go to FQR again. I never want to come last at the Olympics again. What do I have to do to go up to Penrith and put myself in the best situation to get there? Um, So, yeah. Yeah. Well, um... yeah. Oh no,
1: as I said um, at the start of this conversation, it is something that's. Yeah, we're going to have. We, we could run a whole year of these conversations with you, you, Drew, and actually talking about pushing the limits. So, one of the things we will um, have a crack at um, opening up a new limit is um, we'll get Lucy out into one of these surf skis. Um, so, Drew's, Drew's uh, thrown himself in the deep end, literally. <laughs> that's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> in uh, one of these epic surf skis, which, um, which I've been having a lot of fun on. But now I'm playing catch-up again in Drew in another kind of boat. So um, <laughs> I'm sort of seeing all this sort of adventurous stuff that you're sort of um, getting into. But Lucy, we're going to line up a time to get you out in one of these surf skis because, right. one, Sounds you'll good. find some new, some new limits and, awesome. two, um, it's a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, it a lot of fun. sounds great. And I can reinforce what you're saying there, Maxine. This is probably goes to the heart of, I suppose, the curiosity piece. What I found with the surf ski is, principally, is exactly the same as rowing. I mean, you're going backwards versus forwards. I get that, but the catch, the idea of the catch and connect yeah. to the water is the mm. same. The idea of hold the water, move the boat past it is the same. You're actually doing more rotation, and it's a bit more sweep rowing than it is sculling, but. There's so many things that are really similar. What I also love about it is my my stability around my middle of my stomach and all that sort of stuff. My core stability is better now than I think it was as an athlete having paddled now for eight or so months. Um, but to you know Maxie's point, Lucy, I think being out in the water in another kind of format is just enthralling. It's really enjoyable, and so I'll, I've recommended it to a number of other rowers and to down there. But it, it can make people better rowers. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And, and for the kite paddles, better rowing. It'll make them better kite paddles,
1: I'm sure. Thank you for uh, joining us this morning. Really uh, love the chat and um, and obviously, you know, um, all the things that you've done as an athlete, but then sort of afterwards, um, I think sort of just awesome for people to get little bits of information that sort of you've learnt and and sort of tap into what they're doing in their, um, you know, seasons and campaigns. But, um, no, it's been awesome. So thanks thanks for joining us this morning.
2: My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You too. Good to see you both. Awesome. Thanks, Drew. Cool.
1: Okay. Thanks, guys. Bye. Have a good day.